The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. Come and smash that subscribe. Come and smash that like. Jump on in the chat and participate. Uh, This is an episode where we are diving into the big old bag of mail with your mailbag questions. And we always love live listener questions as well. A little bit later on, we will get into uh, sort of a timeline of the NCAA's decline, at least when it comes to its power over college football. We've got a lot of conference realignment questions, including what the future might be for Pitt, what the future might be for Oklahoma State. Uh, Also, we want to take things on the field, try to identify Power five teams that could have their best season or at least their best team in at least a decade and much, much more. But we're going to start uh, leading into a question about the Big 12 with just sort of a we're going to take stock of the Big 12 in general, because this is a league that uh, after Texas and Oklahoma uh, announced that they would be going to the SEC. I mean, the league looked like it was about to fracture. I mean, this, the Big 12 was the original Pac-12. Like, we're sitting here talking about the Pac-12 and the ACC and the moves that they're trying to do to save their conference. Well, the Big 12 was the OG here. And what did the Big 12 do? The Big 12 went out and it added Cincinnati, it added BYU, it added UCF, uh, and it added Houston. So, in a sense, it has changed its positioning in the college landscape, but we still have college football to talk about this fall. So before we get to the Big 12 defenses in general, Tom, do you think that the Big 12 is positioned such that when we talk about this new college football universe, you know, everything's going to be led by the SEC and the Big 10, SEC and the Big 10, Big 10 and the SEC, has the Big 12 stabilized itself in a way that it could also walk with those two mega conferences into college football 2.0? I think it's it's a trick question in a way. Like I I, ha- I was asked, I did a radio hit in Kansas City yesterday with Soren Petro. And I was oh, asked shout to- out to Soren Petro, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm on with him as well. I know he's a big fan of the Cover 3 podcast, so he'll listen to this. Yeah, I, I, did, I gave a very long-winded answer 
to this kind of question. But then I was also talking to another Cover 3 listener and professional talker, Kevin Clark, yesterday from The Ringer. And he gave the same answer I did, but he took my five-minute answer and he put it in five words. The big he's 12, a good writer. I mean, that it makes sense. He's, he's, yeah, he's, I mean, Miami super booster. But it's like I, I, I spent five minutes saying, and he put it in five words. His five words was so much, in, more or less, was the Big 12 isn't really stable as much as it just ran out of desirable programs. Like the Big 12 didn't do anything specific to be in the position it's in it's just all the programs that like the sec and the big 10 want they've already taken from the big 12 so if you look at who's left in the conference there's nobody that's really adding surplus value to these quote-unquote super conferences therefore the big 12 has stabilized now i think that to the point of the question yeah it i think the big 12 is in a good position in that if we do have two super leagues and then a third league, it's looking pretty solid right now, because I do think if we're just looking at it from a big 12 pac 12 perspective, I think the big 12 is safer right now than the pac 12, because as far as I know, big 12 schools aren't actively trying to leave the conference or, you know, sniffing around to see what else they can get out there, which they were a year ago. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, and what happened? Nobody, no, nobody wanted them. Yeah. yeah. The PAC 12 said nobody adds value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, I, I think it's a weird situation. It's hard to know what stability means at any point right now, because the ACC is probably not stable. The big 12, the big 12 is stable in that nobody's trying to raid its teams, but the big 12 is unstable in that it is actively depend according to reports trying to add teams and could soon be at 18 teams in its conference so i don't know what the overall future holds for the big 12 but i do think that we're in an era where we're going to have at this point my best guess is we're going to have three major leagues and or it might just be like right now we have the power five and the group of five we might just have the power two a mid-tier of the ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, whatever the hell it is at that point, and then the G5 would become like a third tier. I think that's the more likely scenario at this point. I think that I agree with you. Now, how they exist within the context of like a subdivision or what they're playing for, I don't know quite yet, but I do think that I feel confident saying that the Big 12 and the Pac-12, as they stand right now with their current leadership, are not friends. No. Like the, the idea of a Big 12, Pac-12 merger, I think that is off the table. I think that it would have to be like you were talking about, almost a hostile takeover from the Big 12. And here's what uh, you know, I mentioned uh, on Wednesday's podcast, that, that line in the last paragraph of the Dennis Dodd report about the Big 12 being in discussions to try to uh, go and get some of those teams from the Pac-12, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah, and then maybe even uh, Oregon and Washington. And at the very bottom, it said Fox is not expected to be a part of the Pac-12 media rights negotiations, leaving the ESPN for Pac-12. We got into that a little bit more on the Pac-12 side. Listen to Wednesday's show, subscribe, review, yada, yada, yada. But then also I was reminded that um, when the Big 12 commissioner Brett Yormark was introduced among the many sort of quotes that were um, that were given to say like um, we're excited about what uh, Yormark is going to do as commissioner you know from this university president from uh, you know this athletic director 
There was also one from an executive from Fox Sports. So when I think about the state of the Big 12 and I think about this you know, arms race that we continue to go back and reference, if the Big 12 has Fox on its side, obviously Fox's number one priority is going to be the Big 10. But if Fox is going to make the Big 12 its junior member or its like number two running mate, then mm -hmm. I think the Big 12 is stable because the Big 12 is going to have its own media rights negotiations coming up. And if uh, Fox is pulling its stock out of the Pac-12 and instead investing it in the Big 12, then that's why Big 12 with a new commissioner probably feels like an apex predator out here looking at the Pac-12 because they know they at least have um, the backing of being able to have uh, that support, a support which is going to be very, very valuable in trying to keep everybody on board, not just with money, uh, but also with knowing that you're going to get the kind of placement, the kind of ratings, the kind of uh, support that is needed to be able to be relevant in the next edition of college football. So like you said, there, there's not really a competition for who's going to, no one's going to go and beat out the SEC or the Big Ten for supremacy right now when it comes to college sports based on the way they're currently built. But when we're looking for who's going to be the best of that mid-tier, I do think the Big 12's in kind of a somewhat stable position, even if, as you and Kevin Clark have mentioned, they are lacking desirable options to be poached. But if, if we're in a universe where the ACC, as it is, stays intact... And the Big 12 adds the Arizona schools, Colorado and Utah, and, and maybe Oregon, Washington. Do you think the Big 12 is a better conference than the ACC? If Oregon and Washington is in the mix, for, if we're talking about college football, I do think that that's a, that's a very, it is A, a very fair argument, and B, possibly true. That Oregon, Washington, um, Utah, and then Get adding Cincinnati, adding BYU, UCF, Houston. I mean, all four of those from the college football perspective, as we're sitting here right now, are plus value college football programs and ones that if you drop them in the ACC, they are not going to be edging out Clemson, Miami up at the very top, but they're also not going to be at the bottom of that conference either. So I, I very much think that if – the Big 12 were to go through with adding those Pac-12 teams, and especially if it includes Oregon and Washington, then you've got depth that I think that the ACC wouldn't have, and then you've also got um, enough top options that I think would be competitive with the ACC. See, because here's an aspect to this that I, that I think would affect both the ACC and the Big 12 pretty drastically. Like, if the ACC stays the way it is, the Big 12 stays what it is and adds a few more schools but the sec and the big 10 continue to separate themselves like what does recruiting look like for those two conferences in their home states because i feel like the most likely outcome here and it's already happening for the most part is that the top recruits are already going to the sec mostly but the top programs in the acc are still able to get land plenty of guys and the top programs in the big 12 have still been able to land some guys but when texas and oklahoma leave i don't know if that'll still be the case but for like miami florida state clemson are you going to be able to recruit at the level you need to to be an elite program in a world where there are two semi-professional power leagues in the sec and the big 10 or are all those recruits that maybe you used to land suddenly going to be more inclined to go to the big 10 than you because they want to play in the major league well there's only 22 starting spots there's only for now 85 scholarships like there's 
There's something that's going to change, though. I, I, that I think, is, I do I think th- that's going to change. But that's going to be one of the big changes from when this happens and they break off from the NCAA. I, we can get into that with the NCAA question, but I'm I'm starting to think it might not be a true breakaway as much as like the super division or the subdivision on top of the division where they get to make their own rules. But think of it, uh, here, here goes Machiavelli and stuff. But if the Big Ten and the SEC do do this and they decide we're enough and we don't need the NCAA, they can also change the rules to where it's like, well, no, we're not going to, we'll have, okay, sure, a hundred scholarship limit. And that way they'll be able to hoard players, anybody they want. And they'll be able to keep them going to the other conferences because they'll give themselves more room to recruit them. And they'll have more money to do it because they'll be able to pay them more in NIL because they'll be in the premier, more powerful league. So, again, I, I think that we're going to see a situation where those two become what the Power Five is considered now. And then the rest of the Power Five is going to be what the G5 is now. It's just not going to be as attractive of a product to high, you know, high end recruits. That is uh, if that that is without a doubt one of the one of the ways that this goes. Um all right, we'll, we'll get back to the NCAA here in just a little bit. Let's uh, let's keep it with the Big 12. This question comes from Brendan from Jers, which I assume is Jersey. Shout out. It's one of Coca's boys. First off, love the podcast. As a huge Big 12 fan, the one thing I hate is when people say that the teams don't play defense. Although it was true for a number of years, I think recently the conference has grown out of that. Baylor and my beloved Oklahoma State had two top 10 defenses last year. And I want to know what you think about the current defensive status in the Big 12. He's a Baylor fan or he's an Oklahoma State fan? Oklahoma State fan. All right. So you're incredibly skewed by the games that you've been watching because, I mean, on on traditional metrics, yeah, Baylor and Oklahoma State were top 10 defenses, but there are eight other teams in the league. And I, I broke this down into some more. Uh, I, more advanced stats that I like to use for power rating teams and all that kind of stuff. If we look at the Big 12 last year, Oklahoma State and Baylor did well in just about every area, that you know, whether it's the traditional or the advanced. But if we look at how many teams that the Big 12 had in the top 20 in success rate, two, Oklahoma State and Baylor. If we look at how many they had in points allowed per drive, they had three with Oklahoma State at five, Iowa State at 18, Baylor at 19. If we look at success rate on defense, they had one in the top 20. In Oklahoma State, Baylor was at 21. I'm sorry, that's EPA, not success rate. If we look at defensive overall success rate, they had two with Oklahoma State at eight and Baylor at 20. Top 50, it doesn't really get much better. You've got Iowa State in a couple of those, but overall they had three teams in success rate top 50, four teams in points allowed per drive top 50, and four teams in defensive EPA allowed top 50 let's go to the bottom 50 (laughs) how many teams did the big 12 have ranked in the bottom 50 in success rate four with oklahoma with oklahoma at 52 how many did they have in points allowed four with oklahoma at 53 how many points did they have in the bottom 50 of defensive epa five yes oklahoma state and baylor had solid defenses iowa state had a solid defense for the most part but man, once you get past those three, the other seven teams, 
generally played terrible defense last year. So, no, I don't think the Big 12's defensive reputation is different. I think that the only thing that has changed is the teams that have the good defenses. Because in recent years, when we were always talking about how terrible the Big 12 defenses were, by and large, Oklahoma and Texas had decent defenses. TCU had a decent defense. It was the rest of the league that had awful defenses. That hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is which teams have them and which ones don't. Yeah, TCU bled out last year, and we said going into the season, and maybe even during the year, that if if Gary pa- if Gary Patterson's tenure at TCU was coming to an end, we would know because the defensive side of the ball would drop off because that is your side of the ball. If you can't get that fixed, that's a problem. Kansas can, I mean, uphill battle for the Jayhawks in terms of just having the dudes to be able to to win defensively. Texas Tech, Texas was bad defensively last year. I was looking at it though, and I was thinking that for the narrative of the Big 12 defenses as a whole, I do think we are off that because when half of the league is at least fielding respectable defenses and the, to to get it back to the out of it, advanced analytics into the commonplace world, like Big 12 unders were fun for us for two mm-hmm. reasons because we also have offenses that aren't trying to light it up every yeah. single time. We, we've got a Kansas State. We've got an Iowa State. Uh, Baylor has explosive players and creates explosive plays, but they do not move with the pace that they did in the Art Bryles time. So some of the narrative, I, as I was trying to identify this, is a little bit more about playing style than it is necessarily about the defense is all being awesome because what we have seen is that the entire Big 12 isn't running a type of spread that is all unique. In fact, the you know what Jeff Grimes is doing at Baylor, um, obviously what Matt Campbell and his staff are doing at Iowa State, it is uh, it is a little bit more um, traditional, well, not traditional in terms of schematics, but at least in terms of pace, we are no longer pushing it to the brink in a way that is going to create those ridiculous. Uh, 45, 42, no one can get a stop kind of games that we had maybe a decade ago or a half decade ago. And that's why we love those. Oh, and wind because it's always windy yeah, and always windy. Know, Ames and Manhattan and, you know, all of our favorite places where we get that, you know, sun high in the sky for the afternoon kickoff. Sun powers the wind. We got time before we get into that. But it, to me, one reason the narrative is flipping is because we, of the offenses and the way they handle their business in the Big 12. Yeah, for sure. That definitely plays a role in making it look like the defenses are better. And you could say, like, if you look, if you go to the Big 10 West and it's like every single year, those teams typically perform really well in defensive metrics. And you say, well, are they just great at defense or are they not facing anybody on offense? I think that was kind of what we saw with the Big 12 last year going into what you're saying. A lot of the offense has changed. But as Chance Babin points out in the comments, and this is definitely just an outlier, to go back to the Big 12's old reputation, Kansas held Texas to 56 points and won. So (laughs) it's not all the way gone. That game was stupid. Wasn't Oklahoma, Kansas a little bit stupid too? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I was looking at, so Oklahoma with Jeff Lebby, I have to assume is going to be running up tempo. Mm-hmm. Steve Sarkeesian calls it all gas, no breaks. You know, and he, you're going to have a prolific quarterback in Quinn Ewers. Like that's, His defense that's, with like a little more breaks. Though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you've got Quinn Ewers and Bijan Robinson, I, Xavier Worthy, Isaiah Neor, I, I expect that they will be running pretty quickly. You know, Texas Tech, they went and got the Western Kentucky offense, so they will be running at a breakneck speed as well. Mm-hmm. Sonny Dykes at TCU. Like, we 
we might start to see a little bit of a return to some traditional Big 12 kind of uh, scores and, and gameplay as, as we look ahead to the 2022 season. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if we see more of an old Big 12 in that now that Jim Knowles has left Oklahoma State, we really don't know what that defense is going to look like because it might just be, you know, a coincidence. But at, the, at this point, Oklahoma State's defense has only been good when Jim Knowles was there. And then we could look at the situation where Gary Patterson has left TCU, but maybe Dave Aranda and Baylor take on the role of what TCU had been during the Patterson era where they're the, you know, strong defensive team. But then we see a bunch of other high-powered offenses taking over. But again, also, too, Texas and Oklahoma are leaving in a couple of years, so we don't know what that's going to look like when Cincinnati comes in, when UCF comes in, when BYU comes in, when Houston comes in. So I, I still think the Big 12 is the Big 12. And frankly, I hope the Big 12 remains the Big 12 that way because the Big 12 is a fun league to watch. JT Daniels also could give West Virginia's offense a little bit more yeah. pop as opposed to having to be uh, a team that is relying – uh, a little bit more on what you can do defensively and uh, and trying to play a little bit more control. All right, let's keep it. This is uh, we're going hard on the Big Twelve here, but there's we got one more question. This one comes from John. I feel as if no program in college football has had more recent on-field success, but faces a bigger perception and branding challenge than Oklahoma State. If you look at major on-field per- performance metrics over the last fifteen years. Oklahoma State is top 12-ish in all of college football for Mm -hmm. most of them. Yet, they have the unique challenge of living in the shadow of Oklahoma in their home state. And they can't even brand themselves as the premier OSU thanks to Ohio State. Don't forget Oregon State, too. Oregon State has similar problems, but doesn't have the on-field success to back it up. Programs like Utah and Wisconsin have had similar on-field success, but aren't the afterthought of a top-five program in their own state. If you were Oklahoma State, would you stick would you stick to the new Big 12 to separate yourself from Oklahoma, similar to how Texas A&M tried to separate itself from Texas, or would you follow Oklahoma and take a seat at the big table if you're lucky enough to get invites from the SEC or the Big 10? Uh, you're not going to get the invite from the Big 10. Right. Um, uh, I don't think you're going to get an invite from the SEC either because – now that you have Oklahoma, although maybe, I don't know, that you are a powerful enough football program to where the SEC could come and get you if it continues to expand. But I think the SEC is going to go a different direction. But I think you're right in that Oklahoma State generally does fly under the radar a bit too much considering how much success it's had. And I think that, I mean, I've got a soft spot for the program. I have had one for a while. I, I There's a part of me that thinks as long as the Big 12 survives – like Oklahoma leaving might be the best thing for you because as he said in the question, I mean, Oklahoma state, the problem it faces is that it is in Oklahoma shadow. Oklahoma is the longtime power in that state. It's been a longtime power in college football. And once Oklahoma leaves, like we talked about on the mailbag last week, when we were asked, what's the next blue blood to kind of become an afterthought. And I said that Oklahoma's, strikes me as the kind of team that could become an afterthought after it joins the SEC and just becomes like another old miss Arkansas Arkansas like team going eight and four Auburn although Auburn's won national titles so we probably shouldn't compare anyone to Auburn because that's just that's a manic depressive program if one ever existed but I think Oklahoma State positions itself as long as it stays the way it's been going in a new big 12 
if you're winning the Big 12 and you're competing for Big 12 titles every year while Oklahoma is suddenly going eight and four and nine and three in the SEC and maybe playing in New Year's Day bowl games or whatever, but not really competing for national titles anymore, I think that could be a boost to the overall profile of your program. But as I was saying earlier, I just don't know what the ceiling of any program outside of those two conferences is really going to be as far as getting national love. But I would just say that if I'm a college football fan, being adored by the nation probably shouldn't be my number one priority. Yeah. That's does I, it go, yeah. go back to your common sense. Like what if we didn't chase having the most money possible? Mm-hmm. What if $35 million per year per school is just enough and we don't have to make sure that we're keeping up with 80 million and $90 million per year per school. If I'm an Oklahoma state fan, am I having fun watching my team play? Am I enjoying it? Yeah. All right. Cool. That's all I need. Yeah. Win your home games, uh, be competitive against the toughest teams on your, in your conference. And to the point of like projecting what Oklahoma state is, Oklahoma state is one of the most uh, respected and high-level programs in the new Big 12. It's also just, it's a fun program, period. Like, it's fun to watch. Its home atmosphere is terrific. They've typically run an exciting and entertaining offense over the last years. It's just, it's a fun team. And frankly, it's like, that's, if I'm an Oklahoma State fan, that's really, they're everything I already need. They win a lot of games, and they're fun as hell to watch. Perfect. Pokes up. Shout out to Kyle Porter, Kyle Boone, all of our resident Oklahoma State lovers at uh, at uh, CBS Sports here. Okay, let's uh, let's do one more. Okay, this next question. Here we go. Great job keeping the content rolling even in the sub- summer months. Question: In one of the earlier pods, you all mentioned that this will be the best NC State team in at least a decade. What other Power 5 programs will have their best team this upcoming season in the past decade? So not including NC State? Oh, did you have NC State at the top of your list? <laughs> I went because, yeah, when you just set the questions over. It didn't mention that. But I just did because I, I took it this to the approach of I tried to get one in each Power 5 conference, like okay. one candidate. And NC State for me is the ACC team because it I think legitimately the Wolfpack have a chance to win 10 games for the first time since 2002 so that I think is the obvious one and we've the questioner said we've got over it they've got a good quarterback they've been good the last few years Clemson is on shakier ground I think than it's been at any other time I just think that they're poised to have not it wouldn't even be a breakout season because of how well they've played I just think that they could peak this year well yeah Um, it would be the most to, to your point the the only time they've never finished in the top 10 of the AP poll ever. Correct. I think that that's possible. this year. Yeah, that could happen this year. They've, they have one double digit win season back in 2002 with Phillip rivers. Like it is possible for sure. This, that this is not just one of the best NC state seasons in a decade, but one of the best NC state seasons in program history. And it wouldn't be like you said, wouldn't be a breakthrough because the last, the 2020 season, the 2021 season is very much been building to this point. But, um, but yeah, this, cause it, there's a, there's a question in the chat right now. Why so much hype for NC state NC state returns a ton of experience off a of defense that rated in the top 10, top 12 nationally last season. They had a bunch of injuries, and even when the backups came in, they were still very productive and very good. Their offense actually wasn't awesome. 
last no. year, big picture, but their quarterback is. And when we start to look at winning games on a schedule that for NC State projects to have a lot of coin flip games, I'll tell you what's a good recipe uh, to win games. Having a good defense and a good quarterback. Mm-hmm. Threw for 35 touchdowns to five interceptions last year. He takes care of the ball. He's good in the red zone. Devin Leary and that NC State defense are good enough uh, for NC State to be a part of this. Yeah, and then Devin Leary will go to the NFL and will have to deal with a decade of Will Brinson saying that he's a Hall of Famer and better than Patrick Mahomes. Oh, what a burden for Devin Leary to bear. <laughs> uh, I also had Miami. Mm. So Miami made the ACC championship game back in 2017. They had that really like fast start, uh, undefeated, 10 and 0. Corked it a little bit near the end of the season, but I think that there's a potential that this team could be better, and the result of making it to the ACC championship game could be matched. I thought that the offense for that 2017 Miami team was very, very patchwork, and they were just kind of making it happen. Um, defensively and then being able to figure out just enough. I think with Tyler Van Dyke, uh, with Jalen Knighton, with the way that they've sort of built out the wide receiver room, where I do admit that there are some questions, you've got a really, really solid um, offensive line. And then defensively, I love the combination of transfers that have come in along with some, you know, sophomores like Leonard Taylor, James Williams, players who uh, were very highly rated from the previous regime and I think flashed a little bit last season. So I think that while Miami this season could match those results and maybe even match that win total, I do think that it's going to be a better team than it was back in 2017. It could be. I think, I, like you mentioned, in 2017, they reached like number two in the AP poll. I don't, I don't think that is in Miami's 2022 season. But we also, we, you and I were on HQ last night and we were asked, you know, for betting odds, just like for conference futures. I thought Miami was the best value on the board in the ACC as far as winning the conference. doesn't mean I think it's going to happen. So I do think Miami is capable of winning the ACC this year. And if it does, obviously, yeah, that would trump winning 10 games and being number two in the AP. Winning your conference would be your best season in 10 years by far. So I don't think it's an awful pick at all or even a bad pick. I think it's a good pick. I just, I think NC State's the more likely scenario here. All right, who else did you have uh, on your radar? I I kind of wondered if Jordan is the one that submitted this question, just Tennessee. like crossing his fingers, getting us to hope that we would say Tennessee. But in the SEC, looking around, of any team that I feel like is poised to have its best season in a decade. And a lot of teams are eliminated from this because a lot of SEC teams have had really good seasons. Well, in the so last decade. I was thinking, uh, you know, Mississippi state, like if you want to get in on Mississippi state, but they had the DAC years where they were mm-hmm. like awesome and winning 10 yeah. games and getting to the orange, orange bowls. Yeah. So it's like for Tennessee, they haven't had that in a long time. So I think Tennessee is the best answer in the SEC, but I'm not confident in it happening because I watched Tennessee last year and they were a lot of fun and I enjoyed it and they score a lot of points, but they still give up just as many. And I don't know if they're going to make the kind of improvement defensively that you're going to need playing in the SEC to win on a weekly basis or if they're just going to be entertaining. So I I don't know if they're going to be any different than they were last year. So I think they're the best candidate, but I don't think it's going to happen. The um, you just barely get to rule out the peak of Spurrier, South Carolina with the 10 year cutoff. So depending on like how flexible you want to be with that and what you think Spencer Rattler and um, year two of Shane Beamer is going to look like, maybe you could throw me a South Carolina. I would hear that. 
but that in the SEC, it was very tough because SEC teams have had a lot of success over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the big 10, I have two, I have one, I have one. No, I don't, I'm, I'm down on Purdue this year, but I, I have one that I think is the most likely and then one very dark horse. The one I think is most likely is Minnesota in that I know they won 10 or 11 games the other year, got to the Outback Bowl, beat Auburn. But I think Minnesota could win the division this year. I think that the division is very open. I don't think I think Wisconsin is your favorite. I think Iowa is still very good, but I don't see either of those teams being dominant. And I think Minnesota, if things break right, could end up winning that division. They almost won the division last year. So regardless of record, if they win the division, get to the Big Ten championship, it's the best year Minnesota's had in at least a decade, probably much longer. The other one, though, the one on the east, Maryland. They're going to have an explosive offense. They've got the quarterback with the YOLO properties needed. They've got really good receivers. I just I, I don't expect them to have a great season because there's kind of a ceiling as to what you can do when you've got to butt your head up against Michigan State, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State. But like they went seven and six last year. I could see them pulling off an upset here and there, maybe getting to eight wins, nine wins, which would be for the most part, like maybe not the last decade, but definitely their most exciting season as a Big Ten school. Yeah. So I I include them. You've got to go back, I think, to 2012 to get them like like right at the 10 year mark for that we're operating here for when Maryland was. Like 2011, 2012, Maryland was flirting with uh, ACC championship contention the last time out. So it would it, best of as a Big Ten member would be significant. Mm-hmm. Do you have any Big Ten teams? No, I was going to say Purdue because while you, we get excited, we we got excited about Purdue's success. The actual like win total and you know where they have been in the Big Ten West race. Like that, we still haven't. It's the the Minnesota um, proposition where Purdue doesn't have the eleven win season back in twenty nineteen that Minnesota does, but it also has that same claim of has not has not finally broken through and been able to win the division since the elimination of Legends and Leaders. See, my my skepticism about Purdue is basically on the defensive side of the ball. Like I know they lose a lot in offense, but I don't really worry about a Jeff Brom offense. And I, there's been a direct correlation between Brom's best years at Purdue and the down years with how well the defense plays. If the defense is playing well, they win. If it's not, they don't. And I don't know that Purdue, given what they lost from that defense, obviously Karloftis is the big name, but there are other players on there that are gone who aren't back. I just, I, I'm skeptical that that team's going to be able to play at the same rate. I think they're going to a bowl. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think they're winning nine games. So I, I think next last year will be better than this year. So I can't really consider them um, in the big 12. Like Kansas state was the team that popped to me first. Cause we talked about it a little bit yesterday, how I th- everybody kind of considers them a dark horse, but 10 years ago they went 11 and two and nearly made the BCS. I don't think that's happening this right. year, so it wouldn't right. be the best season of the decade. So I think the best team in the Big 12 or the best candidate for this is Texas Tech. I think we kind of touched on it earlier. Like Texas Tech is going to be getting back to what Texas Tech was when Texas Tech was at its funnest and most entertaining. Zach Kitley is coming in. We saw what he was doing with the offense at Western Kentucky. He's going to be running the offense there. McGuire has obviously kind of injected some life into the program, getting some excitement going. People are pumped. I think Donovan Smith at quarterback was somebody most college football fans aren't really familiar with, but was very good for the Red Raiders last year. And I think in that offense, he's somebody who could have a monster season. So 
if there is like we saw last year, Oklahoma State and Baylor both making the Big 12 championship. If there is a dark horse kind of Iowa State, Oklahoma State, Baylor team this year to sniff the, the Big 12 championship that nobody sees coming. I think that's Texas Tech. I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think this is going to be a fun, entertaining team that could win eight or nine games. I didn't have anybody in the Big 12 that jumped out at me. In the Pac-12, you've got to go right to the 10-year cutoff. But Oregon State could win eight. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oregon, like, so in 2012, Oregon State went nine and four. They finished in the top 20 uh, under Mike Riley. Top 20 finish in the AP poll. Uh, I can I can fill out 20 teams that I think I would project are going to finish in the top 20 before I get to Oregon State. However, being able to get to a bowl game, being able to win eight or nine games, uh, especially when you consider that you know, since then, it, you had a, a long bowl drought for Oregon State where from 2013 to just last year, uh, where Jonathan Smith led the Beavs to a seven-win season on into the L.A. Bowl. We didn't have any bowl games at all. I think Oregon State is absolutely bowling and should flirt with that eight, nine-win kind of mark for the first time in nine or ten years. 100% agreement. They were my Pac-12 school. And part of it is, like, for everything you said, I think that this is just a program that, you know, outside the COVID year had already been on a good trajectory under Jonathan Smith, and I think we're going to continue to see that kind of improve a little bit this year but another factor is who else in the pac-12 do you even think fits this description <laughs> uh like, well and some of it's because of also success like washington yeah. oregon been to the college football playoff in the it's last like, 10 years you're not going to do that like you know. so when you when you look at the teams in the pac-12 that have room to grow none of them really give you reason to be optimistic that that it's going to happen this season Washington State had a you know top ten, top eleven season under Mike Leach, mm-hmm. so it's not going to be them. Colorado made it to the Dagum Pac-12 championship game. Mm-hmm. Not going to be them. So I, it is both with confidence and support for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State that we are both on the Beavs, yes. but it is also acknowledging that the other options are a little bit limited. Uh, so the, the live chat has mentioned Arizona a good bit, and we are very F1 much team. on the record yep. with one win team with Arizona, the best one win, one win team in the entire country. So uh, when I was going through to look it up, 2014 provides a little bit of a hiccup because in 2014, Arizona not only won the Pac-12 South, they won 10 games, and they went and made it to the Fiesta Bowl that season. That was Scooby Wright and Khalil Tate, right? Correct. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't know if it was Khalil Tate. No, it wasn't Khalil Tate. It was definitely Scooby Wright, who was tearing it up in the USFL this year, by the way. Just dominating. That was was some remember some guys right there with with the USFL. Scooby Wright um, and, and that Arizona team. Anyway, because that was in 2014, I threw them out. Do I see big improvements for Arizona? Yes. yes. Do I think that they are going to jump up and win 10 games? No. I got my Arizona shirt from home field earlier this week. I should have wore it today. Damn it. Mm, we could have done it and given Jed Fish a big old shout out. I'll wear it next week. Coming up on the other side. A couple questioners want to take a look at the NCAA. We've mentioned it a couple times, a breakaway from the NCAA, the NCAA losing power. When did the NCAA even have power, and how did it start to lose it? We'll get into that, Uh, the conference realignment future, how it looks for Pitt, and 
Live listener questions, if time allows. Next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. You know, I, I take some offense there. Like, I, if if you're watching live and you saw a Paramount Plus ad, first of all, subscribe. It's great. Tons of wonderful content, which some of which you saw. But it was about the reality shows that they have this summer and the challenges on there. The challenge is not a reality show. The challenge is a sport. It's sports. Yeah, it is not. It, it is not people competing to fall in love for fakeness and all that kind of stuff or get into fights like that happens. But it is at its core a sport and the challenge USA started last night on CBS also streaming on Paramount plus and you saw they, they're taking people from things like Survivor and Big Brother and Love Island and all these other shows and putting them on the challenge and these people showed up thinking they were on a reality show and then maybe there'll be some competitions or whatever they quickly realized no 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 you can't just come here and flirt you got to be an athlete and they saw it quick how did it go can you give us a, a challenge episode one recap uh well, Angela and Tyson, who Angela was on Big Brother, but she was she's an athlete. Tyson was on Survivor. He's one Survivor. He's an athlete. They got teamed together in the first competition and just completely wrecked them. And by the way, the first competition was, you know, like jumping down, you know, when you're on a zip line, not a zip line, but like a like when you climb mountains, what's that called? Like the rope that you're on. Anyways, they were on one of those. And it was going down 22 stories, having to do a mathematical equation as you're going down. But it's just if you failed and you got it wrong. You had to climb the 22 stories back up to the top to start over. Like, so you have to, again, you have to be an athlete to do this show. Then you get to the challenge at the end. You have to be an athlete. If, if you're not physically ready, there's, you have no shot of winning this thing. It is just, it is an American sport. It is not a game. It is not a reality show. It is a sport. Birthday parties at rock walls were always just devastating for your boy with very little upper body strength. <laughs> Throw me in a pool. We're swimming. I'm good, baby. Oh, we got to climb this thing. Oh, rough. On Mark belay. W- on belay. <laughs> Mark Womack says that it can't be a sport if there's that much drama. Is it, um, what sports? are we doing on this show today? What are we discussing? We <laughs> All discussing the drama. On yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is a sports podcast, and we are a nominee for the best sports podcast category in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. We appreciate all that you guys do for us. And we hope that you enjoy the show enough to nominate us to advance to the final round to nominate the cover three podcast, go to podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up. Once again, that is podcastawards.com slash app 
slash sign up, then toggle down to the sports category. The whole process takes less than 60 seconds, and we've included a link at the top of the episode description as well. Once again, that is podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up, toggle down to the sports category, and nominate the Cover 3 podcast to advance to the final round of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. All right. Um, here we go. First part, uh, there were two questions. I like to tie them together, bring them into one discussion so we don't have to uh, double this up. So the first one's from B-Dub. He says, you guys do a great job presenting your product. Awesome job. Mailbag question. Can we get a timeline of the NCAA's power decline? What gave them so much power in the first place? And what events led them to losing that power specifically with football? Then this next part, which we can get to uh, sort of within the discussion. Morning, gentlemen. Love the pod. Let's play Doc Brown. Jump in the DeLorean. Does conference realignment happen if instead of the BCS, the NCAA went to say let's went to let's say an eight-team playoff, and it was instituted? The big money would have been split, etc. Or was this? Or was the pending Super League would have happened regardless? So let's start with the NCAA's power decline so the ncaa was started why oh well because people were dying in college football in the early 1900s so teddy roosevelt came out here and was like hey listen we're gonna have to shut college football down and even in the early 1900s they knew it was like well we've we've got to do anything possible to be able to keep college football going cte so they came out (laughs) so we as always will do anything possible to keep college football going And so they created a body which eventually became the NCAA. The NCAA didn't really start to um, have, it was just making rules. It hosted a few championships, but it didn't really start to exert its power until around the 1950s. Why the 1950s? Television. And from about the 1950s until the mid-1980s, NCAA controlled television. NCAA uh, limited how many times you could be on television. The NCAA decided uh, what the television deals were like, took in the television revenue, and basically was the arbiter of all things college football on TV. Then, in 1981, Oklahoma and Georgia, they say, Board of Regents from the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma University and the University of Georgia, they say, whoa, 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 it's messed up. We are Oklahoma. We are Georgia. We should be on television as much as television wants us to be on. They sued the NCAA. The NCAA lost in 1982 and then appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court when they lost in a 1984 decision by a 7-2 to margin, therefore allowing schools and conferences to take over television revenue for football. That is sort of the, the beginning of my answer is that when did the true decline of the NCAA in college football begin? It is that 7-2 to Supreme Court decision in 1984 when their ability to control what schools are on television and how much money those television deals are worth, when that was handed over to the schools and then eventually the conferences as the schools got together to create bundle deals, that was when the NCAA became mostly toothless in terms of real power in the sport. Yeah, the, the exact date was June 27th, 1984. That's when the NCAA's doom was written. And in a way, I guess since you, the, the case was NCAA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, in a way we could say Oklahoma ruined college football. 
So thanks, Oklahoma. But no, it's that's a million percent what it is. Television is what brought many to the sport and made it what it is. And television is what is changing the sport into what it will be, which in the eyes of some will ruin it. In the eyes of some, it won't really change anything. But television is and has been the driving force behind everything in this sport. It's it's the reason the playoff exists, which is why the, the second part of the question is if the NCAA had, you know, created an open playoff at the highest level, would that have solved things? No, because the NCAA has playoffs at other levels and it's not like they became juggernauts. It's television. It's what people have wanted to watch. It's what people want to watch in the future. And we've seen it now where, you know, conferences are hiring entertainment executives to run their conferences. They're treating them no longer as athletic conferences and trying to figure out what's best for the schools and for the sports programs. They're treating it now just strictly as a television product. And that's really all it's going to be in the future. And whether or not it looks like it is now, I don't know. I hope it still resembles what we've seen for the most part. I think a lot of it is going to change. I think a lot of it will be sterilized. And I think that, you know, I've also seen like a lot of sentiment. It's just like, well, once they get free of the NCAA and they're able to make their own rules, everything's going to be better. Is it? Why? What what makes you think that's going to be any different than what it is, especially when the schools were the ones that formed the NCAA and now the schools will be the ones forming this new governing body. But what's going to be driving the governing body is how can we get the most money out of this? It's not going to be what's best for the sport, what's best for the fans. It's going to be how can we squeeze every single damn cent we can out of this product and then, you know, go retire and let somebody else worry about it later. Yeah, the NCAA at a lot of turns um, throughout its history has been trying to cap what schools can make. It's been trying to cap what players can make. And the reason that they continue to take L after L after L in these court cases is to try and cap what someone can do, especially when it comes to money, is un-American. And so when you go to the American justice system and it is laid out plainly, that these NCAA rules, because the NCAA's argument is like, well, we're only trying to cap it so that we can keep the competition fair, and that's just not American. And so that's why they continue to take the L's. Also, uh, June 2021, the 9-0 decision. We went from 7-2 to in 1984 to 9-0 to in 2021. Uh, to, you cannot place limits on educational benefits for college athletes. In 2007, uh, former Oklahoma quarterback Jason White and a few other players sued the NCAA for similar arguments, saying that they were capping the benefits that could be put in. The NCAA responded with a former athletes fund. I mean, it is just continually being picked apart at every single level. And the 1984 television rights deal, especially in our current environment, is the most significant because television rights is what all of conference realignment has been about, at least over the last several decades, if not longer. And so uh, to just look at, at every single point, the NCAA has been trying to limit the amount of money that schools can make, has been trying to limit the amount of money that players can make. And all of it has been from the NCAA's side of it, as I understand it, is to try and make the competition more fair. And that is just not, um, that's just not an ideal that when challenged in the justice system is going to hold up. Yeah, the NCAA has a long established history of getting its ass whipped by courts. 
It's, what a what a great history it is. I will say that, uh, and I'm with you. If they had gone back to create, uh, if they had gone back to create an open championship, that would not have changed conference realignment. And let's be honest too. Like the other part of this is to that question. The playoff has accelerated the process. The playoff was created. And then they were like, oh, my God, look at how much money we're getting out of this. The playoff is what drove the conferences to start realigning to begin with, to give themselves greater access to it and to give themselves greater access to the money that comes with it. And now it's like, oh, my God, what if we keep adding more teams to it? Think of how much more money we could get. We got to grab more teams so we can get this and get into it. The playoff is accelerating things at a level that was I mean, this happened, what, in 1984. And it's been a slow, slow, slow drip. Then the BCS comes, speeds things up a little bit. Then the playoff comes, and now we are moving like at light speed towards everything changing very, very quickly. So, no, the playoff wouldn't have saved anything. It would have just made it happen quicker. All right. Um, here we go. Hey, guys, love the pod. I hope I can listen for years to come. Me too. All right. <laughs> However, I'm a Pitt fan, and I'm very worried about the future. I have two unrelated questions. Number one. Is Pitt totally screwed in the new landscape? I know we aren't competing for natties, but with another round of realignment, I fear Penn State would completely block a possible Big Ten move, and we are relegated to being in a lesser league moving forward. Would being AAU and top 15 in research money, along with a rich, rich football history, save Pitt? Number two, is it possible the sky's falling talk is a little premature? The TV rights deals, the Big Ten, and the SEC command will undoubtedly be huge, but there has to be diminishing return in adding more than 16 teams, right? One billion, maybe 1.2 billion seems likely for the new deal, but would adding more teams after gaining the LA market really make financial sense? Or is there a diminishing return that we see a cap around 16 team super conferences? I definitely think there's a diminishing return at some point. I don't know what that number is, but as to the first part of the question about is Pitt screwed, I, I don't know. Pitt's not going to be in the Big Ten, though. Uh, okay, so what's your confidence there? Because these, you know, we always come back to the AAU. We always come back to the research institution. Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh is a very good mm -hmm. school. It's a lot of the requirements. But what was yes. one of the other requirements I talked about on yesterday's show? Uh, uh, the P oh, you're trying to get into new territories. Mm -hmm. Pitt's not a new territory. You've already got that state with Penn State. And so, yeah, you're bringing in research dollars and you're you're a well academic school, which is fine. Those are all meets requirements, but you're not bringing in new students. You're not bringing in a new population. So therefore, I'm not saying Pitt. OK, I, I said there's not a zero percent chance Pitt is getting in the Big Ten, but it is a very unlikely scenario when there are other candidates who have a lot of the same require a lot of the same credentials that Pitt has as far as academics and research and all that kind of stuff, but also have new markets that they bring with them and in new states and new recruiting grounds. So Pitt is going to be on the lower end of that totem pole of candidates. I don't see that happening. Now that said, I can see Pitt being attractive to the SEC, especially if the SEC starts, you know, moving further north and it gets, you know, if it goes after like a Virginia tech or somebody and may, maybe then Pitt becomes more attractive in that you get in that area and you're getting more television markets in the Northeast. I don't know. So I don't think you're entirely screwed, but I don't think Pitt's in a prime place for a realignment. No. Pitt, uh, considering Pitt and its future also had me going back to the fact that Pitt spent so much of its time, much of its storied history as an independent. Um, and that we were, we had a time 
where there were a lot of independents that were very prominent. Miami was an independent. Florida State was an independent. Pittsburgh was an independent. Uh, Penn State was an independent. And do you think that there would be, like, what would the financial sense be if there is a, a college football playoff subdivision, breakaway style, is it possible that some of these programs that want to hit the gas and compete, is there any room for them to compete as an independent in the new college football playoff subdivision? Or are you so screwed by not being a part of, like you're not going to be able to get the television dollars as an independent signing up without being a part of a bundle, for example? That's uh, hard. I think it'll be one of the reasons I think that Notre Dame is going to end up joining the Big Ten here at some point is I think it is going to be very difficult to be an independent in the future because like the part of the other part of the question that we, you know, diminishing returns on conference expansion and what drives the expansion and why these conferences are grabbing teams is because they're trying to make it a more attractive television product to, again, squeeze every living cent out of the conferences and the people that they can well, at some point, it's going to stop being about brands. You're not going to be able to add teams to your conference that bring value. The next step is going to be adding games. So you're going to see conferences going from eight games to nine game conference schedules and then to 10 game conference schedules. And then maybe you're just going to have when the Big Ten and the SEC are their giant super leagues, they're going to play 12 games a year all against other teams in the conference. So if you're an independent it's going to be very difficult. You're not going to be able to schedule SEC and Big Ten teams, which are going to be big money boosters for you if you're doing that and you're trying to survive that way. You might not be able to survive teams that are in the Big 12 or the ACC at that point because they might have to take on a similar structure just to you know keep themselves afloat. So I just I don't think independence is going to be a viable option for programs going forward. And I think Coca brought this up too in our, our private chat here. I mean, if if the ACC kind of starts falling apart. I think Pitt would fit in pretty well in whatever the new Big 12 looks like. Now that Cincinnati's there, West Virginia are there, you get the backyard brawl back. You kind of have more regional kind of rivalries in that sense. So I could see Pitt ending up in a Big 12 scenario or ACC scenario if the ACC just stays put. So I don't think Pitt is going to be lost in the wilderness. I just don't know how it, it – I don't think it's attractive to the Big 10 and it might be attractive to the SEC, but I don't think they're going to disappear off the face of the earth or anything. You got time for one more? I've got all the time in the world. Well, I don't, but I've got <laughs> I've got time for one more. <laughs> um, this question comes from Pete, and it's just it's right on the heels of that. Great podcast, you guys do a great job of coming up with interesting topics during the long off season. My question: Do you think there's any chance of schedules expanding beyond twelve games? The way teams can go 10 or 11 game conference schedules and still have room for three or four non-conference games. Now that players can receive compensation, there wouldn't be as much outcry over forcing unpaid talent to play so much. Who's going to stop them? The NCAA? Question mark? Nope. I, yeah, I, I don't think that's out of line. I think that going back to what we talked about earlier, too, like I just, I just said, I think that the next step is expanding conference schedules. And then the step after that would be expanding the schedule overall. And I do think going, you know, if the Big Ten and the SEC form their own governing body and they say, well, instead of 85 scholarships, we can have 100 scholarships. We can have 120 scholarships. 
then you can justify adding games because you have deeper rosters and you don't have to worry about injuries kind of impacting it. And if the players are getting paid, you could say, well, yeah, they're getting hurt, but they get paid for it. And we're providing them with, you know, the health care necessary to treat their injuries. So you're becoming a professional league. So, yeah, if the NFL can go from 16 to 17 games, I think college could go from 12 to 13 or 14 and maybe 15 or 16 one day. And then, you know, just again, meet the lifelong dream of television executives to have a second NFL. Woo. Yay. Mm -hmm. Uh So my answer to this was I see a future where players play more games per year, but the regular season schedule might just end up being an all conference schedule. Like you play 12 conference games, but then we've got instead of one conference championship game, maybe a, four-team conference tournament that then plays into like a new postseason, which is an expanded playoff so that if you have made it to the national championship game, you might have played 17 or 18 games. But I've got to think there's there's some calendar constraints where like we can't let this thing go way off the rails. There's no calendar constraints at this point. I mean, what's what's the calendar constraint? The school doesn't matter. It hasn't mattered in a while, and it's definitely not going to matter in the future once these kids are getting paid. They're not, and nobody's going to give a shit about whether these kids are going to class if they're getting paid. It's just like, well, they got jobs. Not everybody needs to go to school, but I, yeah, no, I definitely think that's. I don't think it's likely. I don't want to be on the record saying that, but I definitely think that's possible. But another thing, let's look at this. I mean, Chip, you and I have hosted now for two straight days. No, Danny, no Bud. We haven't mentioned soccer once. Wow. what if instead of a college football playoff, there is a Champions League like product where these conferences have their seasons, they have their own little playoffs and they have champions, but then they have another separate league where the top whatever teams from these leagues then move on to play in the college football Champions League and they have a separate tournament to determine the greatest in the country. And it's going on while the other competition is going on. Mm hmm. Or afterwards, after the season. What if that is your that's your spring football right there? No more USFL, XFL, whatever FLs. You've got the college football regular season from August until mid-January, early February. Then you take a month off, and in March, you start the college football champions league. Oh my God, can you imagine the television executives getting a hold of this? Body, I'm I am staying. I'm I'm not gonna argue some big like player welfare. I'm just saying no. They're getting paid. Know. Who cares? Let them die. Yeah, <laughs> I got somebody. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I I've not um I've not played college football, but I've been in a lot of college football locker rooms and around those programs at the end of the season. I don't travel a lot during the year, but I've been in those uh, end of year. It is. There are broke. There are broken bodies. Chip, we're the paying them season. now. They don't matter anymore. Um, They're just commodities. We're trading and, them. We got. And, you know and we've got guys who can replace them. If you seen the recruiting rankings, there's this other five star we got in the bench. He's got a fresh body. We'll throw um, him in there. I will also push back on television executives saying that there is a calendar constraint because there's no way, even if they've created a second NFL, that they would allow for those to be going on at the same time when they need their big NFL playoffs. Mm. Telling you, I don't. I, I don't think this is going to happen. I'm just saying this is like a. This is the. Uh, we, we were revealing the absurdity in mm-hmm. in the in 
in the fun of it. Yes. This is uh, what somebody's thinking of these ideas. So like you said, this is the no bad ideas phase. That's true. There are no bad ideas right now. Anything, all, whiteboard's clear. It, just throw it up there. It's, it, and guess what? If it's on the whiteboard, it was considered. So leak it to a reporter. We can see what people think about it. Yes, it is technically being considered, along with 99 other ideas. But it is being considered. He is Tom Fernelli. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.